So this morning, this morning's message is um, a little bit different than normal. We're going to explore a topic. It's going to be a topical message, and we're going to explore the topic of vision. This message is is a sermon, but it's less of a sermon and more of a lecture. And so I'm kind of giving you that up front. Uh, I'm a preacher, so I can't help but preach. However, uh, th- this message is, is not necessarily typical. And so if you're visiting us this morning, I want you to know that this, morning message, this morning's message is somewhat of an anomaly. Um, you might say our, our practice here at RBC is to preach systematically through books of the Bible and to do so in, an, in what's called an expository manner. So we practice here at Rosedale Bible Church, which is what, what is called expository preaching. And essentially what that means is that we, we, in our messages, we bring to light the central message of the text. That's what really an expository message is, and we do that systematically through books of the Bible. So for example, right now we're going through the Gospel of John. We took a break from that to do kind of two Christmas messages, and then last week we, we dedicated that time to be united in prayer, kind of a special prayer message at the beginning of the year, and also this week as well, we're kind of connecting this idea of prayer and vision, but next Sunday we'll get back to the Gospel of John. And so, so again, as I said this morning, this, as I said, this morning's message is less of a sermon and more of a lecture. It's kind of a topical message on vision. And so here are some questions I'd like to explore this morning in our message. How is vision used in the Bible? How is vision used in our day? Is Jesus a visionary? How do we discover our vision? And then finally, how do we implement our vision? If in fact we've discovered it, how do we put it to practice? How do we implement it? And finally, it's my hope, very simply, really, uh, it's my hope that we might better understand how to pursue our vision together. That's really the goal of this message, uh, how to better understand how to pursue our vision together. That as a church, we might be, as the title of this message uh, suggests, united in vision. That's what we're after this morning. So, what is vision? What is vision? When you hear the word vision, what comes to mind. What do, you think, what do you think of? Well, it probably depends on the way that we used or you heard that word vision used in a sentence. If I told you I had a vision last night, you might think of one thing. Don't worry, I didn't. Uh, if you asked your elders to give you a vision for the church, well, the nuance is a little different. You might think of something else. If I told you I purchased my glasses at Vision Essentials, you might still think of something else, which is to say that the word vision can be understood in at least three different ways, and probably more ways, but at least three different ways. The word vision is used to describe physical sight. It's used to describe the ability to plan for the future, and vision is used to describe an experience in which someone typically sees into the future. It's an esoteric kind of supernatural experience. So, how is vision used in the Bible? How is vision used in the Bible? Let's start there. When the Bible uses the term vision, it does so along the lines of this third definition, this kind of supernatural sense. Our first encounter with the word, with this word vision, is found in Genesis 15, verse 1. 
It's where, where we read, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. It's the first time we find this word vision used in the Bible. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great, we read. The word vision in the Hebrew comes from the root word to behold, to see, to behold. Makes sense. Carries the idea of seeing. Thus, to have a vision from God is to see something specific that God wants us to see. Furthermore, what qualifies a prophet is vision. In order to be a prophet, you have to have a vision. Numbers 12, 6. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Let's call this kind of vision, this biblical vision, let's just call this prophetic vision. You can write that down, prophetic vision. I think it's the clearest way to understand this kind of biblical vision. So we read in Isaiah 1.1, the vision of Isaiah. Likewise, among the prophets of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the Twelve, this word, this word is used to describe the supernatural experience in, in which the prophets receive a special word or a special revelation from the Lord. They receive a vision. Something interesting about the use of visions in the Bible is how they become a marker for the times, whether they're good times or bad times. 1 Samuel 3.1 says, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent visions. Isaiah 29, 9 and 10, a little bit more poetic, says, Astonish yourselves and be astonished. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. During both the period of the judges, 1 Samuel, and the days before the fall of Jerusalem, the prophet Isaiah, vision from God was lacking. Apparently, visions abounded in high times, and low times were marked by an absence of vision. You're probably familiar with Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. I take this proverb to reinforce what we've previously said, that is without vision, that is special revelation from God, people cast off restraint. They don't know the way to go. As the King James says, they perish. It's a pretty good translation, actually. The history of God's people confirms this. God uses visions to call his people back to him, yet when his people continue in rebellion, as the prophet Isaiah said, God will close their eyes, giving them over to their own devices. This means that order among God's people depends on being able to see, let's say, beyond our horizon. Beyond our horizon. Scripture has given us many examples of men and women who were able to do this. They were able to see beyond our horizon. Moses saw that Israel would be freed from their oppression. Joshua watched Israel conquer her enemies. Deborah identified what was just in Israel. You remember Samuel, he caught a glimpse of the king in that young shepherd boy. Nehemiah and Ezra envisioned how Israel could rise from the ashes of defeat. The prophets Isaiah 
Jeremiah, Daniel, Micah, Hosea, and Zechariah were all able, even if for just a moment, see beyond the horizon and spot the king of kings. Even if it was the, the prophecy of a virgin or a suffering servant or that someone would come from Bethlehem or that a man would ride on a colt. Just for a moment, they could see beyond our horizon. Now, all these people had visions and were able to see beyond our horizon, yet if there's anyone eminently qualified to see beyond our horizon, it's who? It's Jesus, right? More than Moses or Micah, Joshua or Jeremiah, Jesus was able to see the rich contours of God's will. However, before we discuss Jesus, let's return briefly to that second understanding or use of the word vision. How is vision used in our day? Is our second question. Vision is used to describe an esoteric experience, kind of a private experience, of special revelation, prophetic vision, as we've just talked about. And it's used, we might say, and I'm calling it this, pioneer sense, or in the pioneer sense, pioneer vision. I'm sure you've heard things like, vision is the commodity of leadership, or vision grabs. Leighton Ford writes, vision is like a magnifying glass which creates focus, a bridge which takes us from the present to the future, a target that beckons. I'd like to, to define this kind of vision, this pioneer vision, as the ability to see in a way that compels people to pay attention. This is that kind of leadership idea or leadership sense of vision. If you're in your mid-60s, you might remember the date July 20th, 1969. Maybe. Otherwise, I'm sure you've heard we landed on the moon. And yes, we did land on the moon. Although I'm not here to discuss that, necessarily. <laughs> Landing on the moon was no small accomplishment. It was only possible with vision, with this kind of pioneer vision. John F. Kennedy viewed space as a critical Cold War battleground and was able to convince Congress that America could not afford to cede ground to the Soviet Union, even if it was ground on the moon. Kennedy said, 1961, in front of Congress, I believe that this nation should commit itself to landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. It will not be one man going to the moon. If we make this judgment affirmatively, it will be an entire nation, for all of us must work to put him there. Of course... I wasn't alive at the time. But my sense from reading and talking to people is that families who viewed that momentous event felt as if they were actually there taking that first step and stepping out onto the moon. It's like they, they, they caught his vision, and it was as if America was doing that together. As a pioneer, John F. Kennedy had an uncanny way of seeing the world and what's possible. Kennedy knew that, quote, if vision is compelling enough, people will apply their best thinking and efforts to figure it out, regardless of the obstacles and the opposition. 
Leighton Ford again. Vision is greater than sight, deeper than a dream, broader than an idea. Vision encompasses vast vistas outside the realm of the predictable, the safe, the, the expected. As I envision things, forgive the pun, visionaries are optimistic, they're fearless, and they're demanding of change. Which is why, quite frankly, we're often very afraid of visionary people. I assume you believe all this is fine and well, the stuff of, you know, leadership conferences. But what does it mean to cast vision or to be a visionary leader? Furthermore, what does it look like in our day to cast a Christian vision or to be God's visionary? To answer these questions, I want to return to Jesus. You remember I said there's no one eminently qualified to see beyond our horizon than Jesus or no more eminently qualified than Jesus. And so, in summary, up to this point, biblical times, God used prophetic vision to help people see, as I'm saying, beyond our horizon, prophetic vision. And discipline came as a result of rejecting God's visions. In our day, we often use the word vision to describe a leadership quality in which someone is able to see and communicate the future in a way that compels other people to follow or to pay attention. This is what I'm calling pioneer vision. So, returning to Jesus, does Jesus have prophetic vision? Does Jesus have prophetic vision? Can Jesus see beyond the horizon? Now, Scripture doesn't record any event in which Jesus was given a vision. That is, there's no burning bushes, there's no, there's no stars bowing down, there's no Jacob Ladder kind of moments in Jesus' life. But the Bible does confirm that Jesus was a prophet. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many, at many times and in many ways, God spoke, spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. To this point, I don't want you to just sit there. I do intend for you to open your Bibles. So if you would, open your Bible to the Gospel of John. John chapter 6. Look at some scripture. I'm going to try to keep us just in the Gospel of John so we're not flipping all over the place. The Gospel of John chapter 6 starting at verse 60. Again, we're addressing the question, does Jesus have prophetic vision? John 6, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, what did they hear? Well, they heard a very hard saying. You look up at verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's a pretty difficult statement. I agree. When they heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. 
And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Verse 66, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. Peter gives us this wonderful testimony concerning the words of Jesus. He recognizes certainly that there are other voices out there. In fact, there are other messiahs out there. But but he's able to, uh, to recognize the significance of Christ's words. He has the words of eternal life. It's safe to say then that the words of Jesus are testimony that he can see beyond our horizon. He has the words of eternal life. Yet, if Jesus wasn't given a vision, at least not in the way that Moses or Isaiah received a vision, where did it come? Where did these words of eternal life come? Now, I know the short answer is, the easy answer is, well, John, he's God. I know, I agree, that is true. As far as, however, as far as I can tell, Jesus doesn't appeal to his deity in such things. He doesn't. We might say Jesus doesn't appeal to his own authority or his own vision. Jesus is not like us when our kids ask why. What do we say? Because I told you so. That's what we tell our kids. Jesus isn't like that. You know, he just doesn't do that. Actually, quite interestingly, Jesus' authority is a derived authority. That is, it comes from some, somewhere else. He received it from someone else. Look at John 7, verse 14. John 7, verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus says there, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Although Jesus is not making an explicit claim that he is a prophet or that he received a vision, Jesus is claiming that his message came from someone else, someplace else. He received something, a teaching from the Father, and therefore to receive the teaching of Jesus is to receive the teachings of the Father. Look look also at John chapter 5, verse 19. John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. Jesus can only do what the Father shows Him. And because the Father loves the Son, He shows Him all that He is doing. Here again, 
The ministry of Jesus is derived, it comes from the Father. The Father shows Jesus what to do, and Jesus, of course, in perfect obedience, does it. John chapter 5, verse 30. John chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own, Jesus says. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now he's going to talk about John the Baptist for a second. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, that is John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you never have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus, I think, is abundantly clear that his authority comes from the Father. And that the aim of his ministry, what we might call his vision, is entirely that of the Father. He goes on to say there in that verse, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 30 there. Furthermore, in just eight verses, five times he says the Father sent him. So then the teachings, the actions, the coming of Jesus all originate in the Father. He is from the Father. It's fair to say that Jesus is what I like to call the prophet par excellence. He is the prophet par excellence. As God's greatest prophet, his greatest visionary, every word and activity is, of Jesus is done with a perfect window into the mind of God. Therefore, there's no one able, no one able to see beyond our horizon, to see the perfect will of God, to see God's preferred future, no one better than Jesus Christ. As a prophetic visionary, Jesus saw men pulling fish in with their nets and declared, from now on, you'll be catching men. He saw something more. As he discerned the perfect will of God, Jesus stormed the temple and warned, do not make my father's house a house of trade. As he imagined God's love, he turned to the Pharisees and he asked, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to, to do harm, to save life or to kill? When they were silent, he turned to a man with a withered hand and he commanded, stretch out your hand. As he looked beyond the horizon, he gazed down upon Jerusalem. Remember, he lamented, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. He saw a temple torn down. And as he envisioned the father's preferred future, he pleaded, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. 
Whether he saw nets pulled from the water, the commercialization of the temple, human suffering, the city of Jerusalem, or the plan of redemption, Jesus asked, Father, how do you see this? Now, what about the ability to see in a way that compels people to pay attention? If Jesus has prophetic vision, does Jesus have pioneer vision? Does Jesus have pioneer vision? Well, you're probably still in the Gospel of John. Look again at John 6, 66. Again, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? You already read this. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have even a cursory understanding of Scripture. You might recall the many examples in which the discipline, the disciples drop everything to follow Jesus. You remember the Apostle Matthew. He's a good example of this. We read, as Jesus saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, he said to him, follow me. What did Matthew do? He left everything and he followed, he followed him. We see many examples in the Gospels of this. That being said, I'd like to stay with Peter for a moment in the Gospel of John. You know, in the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 17 are this long kind of narrative section that we call the, the upper room discourse. It's, it's there that the, the disciples and Jesus are celebrating the Passover feast. This is the night before Jesus is crucified. You remember this section of Scripture in John 13 begins with Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Well, if you look at John 13, verse 36... We return to Simon Peter. Simon Peter said to him, says John 13, 36, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you, da- will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. We, of course, know that Peter has some lessons to learn yet in the story. But remember the words of Peter in chapter 6, to whom shall we go? Here again, Peter confesses his loyalty. Peter's paying attention so well he can say, I will lay down my life for you. There's no doubt from Peter's perspective he was all in. He accepted Jesus as the prophet par excellence. He had embraced what Jesus said was beyond our horizon. To this point, Jesus says, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow me afterwards. What does that mean? Turn to the end of the book of John. John chapter 21 is after Jesus is crucified, buried, and resurrected. We have Peter again in John 21, verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But but when you were old, 
when you are old, excuse me, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after that he said to him, follow me. If pioneer vision is the ability to see in a way that compels people to pay attention, there's no greater, no one greater than Jesus. Peter would follow Jesus, he would walk behind him, and he would, in the end, lay down his life for Jesus, which is what we read here. And not only Peter, but nearly all the apostles would suffer and die for their allegiance to Christ. If Jesus is the prophet par excellence, he is also the pioneer par excellence. John MacArthur wrote a book titled, The Jesus You Can't Ignore. Isn't that true? So then, did Jesus have prophetic vision? Yes. Did Jesus have pioneer vision as we've defined it? I think he did. I think Jesus, or I think it's fair to say, Jesus is the visionary par excellence. The visionary par excellence. We don't have the right words for him to describe Jesus, but Jesus is compelling. He's spellbinding. He's riveting. He's irresistible. Maybe think of Revelation chapter 1 when the curtain is pulled back, so to speak, and we're able to see Jesus in all of his glory. And it's breathtaking. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning... I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And I love verse 17. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. What else? How else would you respond? Well, this is all fine and well, but what about you and me? What does it mean to cast a Christian vision? What does it mean to be God's visionary? Well, if we're going to be visionaries, our vision must come from the same place as Jesus. Our vision must come from the mind of God. Therefore, our vision must come from the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is what? Breathed by God. Jesus wasn't tasked with dreaming up a vision. Frankly, neither are we. Our task is not to create, it's to receive. I like how one author writes, or what one author writes, vision is a product of God working in us. He creates the vision and we receive it. It becomes a rallying point, a goal toward which we move as his people Vision arises out of our burden to know the will of God. 
Vision is something that elicits a response from us that calls us forth. Goals, on the other hand, are things we project. If I'm part of the body of Christ, it's not really a matter of where do I want to go, but rather where does he want to take me or where does he want to take us? Therefore, Christian vision is not about where we want to go. It's not something that we project. It's, it's about discerning where God wants us to take, where God wants to take you and me. It's about where God wants to take us, where he wants to take this church, Rosedale Bible Church. Not any other church, but this church. As you and I look beyond our horizon, what do we see? What is God's preferred future for you and me? Which is to say, what does God desire? What does God want? What does he want our church, this church, to look like? Well, here's what your elders believe God has revealed to this church. And you know it. We see people hungry for God's word sacrificially caring for one another and desperate to reach the lost. That's what we see. As we study the word and we prayerfully seek God's wisdom, we can't get away from these three elements. A word element, a care element, and an evangelism element, which is what those three ideas have at the center of them. We believe it's a summation of the Christian life. And we believe it's a vision set by God himself, not us. This means, like Jesus, who embraced the vision of his Father, we want to embrace the, the vision given to us through Jesus and his apostles. Although, here I'm just focusing on the life of Jesus. I'm not saying anything about the New Testament epistles, which we could completely unpack and basically prove all of this there as well. I'm just looking at the life of Jesus. And so, I ask... Did Jesus hunger for God's word? Well, Jesus demonstrates a hunger for God's word in Matthew 4. You remember when he is tempted by Satan? What does he do? Three times he quotes scripture. And interestingly, Deuteronomy 8.2 8, or 8.3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Interestingly, that, that he quotes that one. In Mark 12, 26, Jesus responds to the Sadducees with Exodus 3, 6. In Matthew twenty two forty four, 44, Jesus responds to the Pharisees with Psalm 110. He's hungering for God's word. God's scripture is on his mouth. He's, he's refuting his enemies with scripture. In fact, we could even go one step further, maybe all the way to the top and say, Jesus himself is the word. He's the Logos. He so hungers for God's word that he is God's word. And there's a mystery there, certainly. Did Jesus sacrificially care for others? What do you think? Yeah? Can I get an amen? Thank you. <laughs> well, you're still in John's gospel, I assume. John 15. John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture, right? Greater love 
has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We have sacrificial care, and we have the acknowledgement that we're Jesus' friends. <laughs> what a beautiful thing. about John 10? John 10, verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd does what? Lays down his life for the sheep. Look at verse 15. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus died for his friends. Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. Which we should say, if you don't know Jesus in a, in a saving relationship, this is, this is the God of the universe sent his son Jesus to die for your sins. Jesus is a prophetic visionary. He's a pioneer visionary, but he's also the perfect substitute. He came to die for all those who might believe in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his unique son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus hungered for God's word. Jesus sacrificially cared for others. And the third part, was Jesus desperate to reach the lost? Not desperate in the sense of recklessness, but desperate in the sense of urgency. I believe he was. Did Jesus have a pressing need to reach the lost? Did he yearn or long for people to be saved? Well, Luke 9.51 says Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. You know, it was in Jerusalem, right? Crucifixion. Death was in Jerusalem. But he had to pay the penalty for all those who would believe in him. And so he set his face to Jerusalem. I already quoted Matthew 23.37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. You were not willing. Remember John 1.11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus was des desperate to reach his own, yet they rejected him. Remember the parable of the lost sheep? You remember the parable of the wedding feast? Whether a rogue sheep or a repulsive guest, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Therefore, I believe there's plenty of evidence that Jesus hungered for God's word, sacrificially cared for others, and was desperate to reach the lost. It's our conviction that through the life of Jesus, not to mention again the rest of the New Testament, 
God has given, that God has given us a picture of the future. He has shown us what things look like beyond our horizon. He has revealed his preferred future. Namely, that we would crave his word, that we would offer up ourselves for one another, and that we would long that every man would know Christ. This is God's vision, and we believe this is our vision. So, what's next? Some application for closing and closing. And I like to put it this way. I'll give you three words. Monitor, meditate, and move. Monitor, meditate, and move. We need to start by observing or monitoring where we've strayed from God's word. We need to, to discern where people are hurting and suffering and longing. Take stock, you might say. We need to discover the opportunities that are around us to reach the lost. This, again, is the idea of monitoring, observing, noticing, detecting, keeping a tab on these things. Secondly, we need to meditate. We need to pray. Having monitored, observed, and observed, we need to pray, we need to read, we need to think, and we need to talk. Not complain to one another. That's not what I'm suggesting. We need to talk about what are our needs? Where are we failing to hunger for God's word? Who's hurting and not being cared for? What evangelistic opportunities are out there that we're not taking advantage of? Praying about those things, meditating on those things. These are the things that should fill our conversations. When families gather for dinner, when friends gather for coffee, when Sunday school classes meet, when growth groups meet, when ministry teams meet, when elders meet. We're reflecting on the elements of our vision. We're mulling them over. We're turning them over in our minds. We're chewing on them. Where have we strayed from God's word? Who's hurting and in need of care? And where can we find gospel opportunities? Finally, having monitored, meditated, we have to take action. We have to move. Some of us might be able to take bigger steps than others, but we all must move. The distance you travel is, no, is, is not, not important. What's important is that you step towards the Word of God. Again, we'll all have different steps to take, but each of us needs to step towards the Word of God, step towards each other, and step towards the lost, wherever we're at in this church. And so, one closing thought. At Rosedale Bible Church, we see people hungry for God's word, sacrificially caring for one another, and desperate to reach the lost. And each, each of us must pursue this vision as we monitor, meditate, and move, whether step by step or inch by inch toward God's preferred future.